Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here at New Life, and it's my joy and my privilege to be able to deliver God's word uh, to you and for you here this morning. Uh, if you're here today in person, if you have your Bibles, or if you're even at home, I invite you to open up and grab your Bibles if you have them, and join me as we turn to James chapter 2. Today our passage comes from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, and we're continuing our series entitled Living Faith, uh, studying the book of James together. And for those of you who are worshiping here in person, uh, can I kindly ask if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's word as an act of worship and reverence towards him? And I'll read the passage for us. This is James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And this is the reading of God's word. Please be seated at this time, brothers and sisters. Well, in 2013, uh, the company and the phone maker, BlackBerry, uh, they signed a deal to make Alicia Keys their primary spokesperson, their brand ambassador, endorser of BlackBerry phones. And just a couple of days after Alicia Keys and BlackBerry signed this deal, what happened was their brand new uh, creative director, their brand new brand ambassador, she sent out a tweet on Twitter, but this is what the timestamp read on the tweet. February 11, 2013 at 9, 10 a.m. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Sent via Twitter for iPhone. <laughs> And friends, ever since that tweet, Alicia Keys, since 2013, has no longer served as the brand ambassador for BlackBerry phones. Now, friends, the reason I bring this up and share this is because many of us already know this, but as a general principle in life, you know that people's behavior, their actions, more than their words, show what they really deep down in their hearts, what they believe. In this case, it didn't matter how hyped up Alicia Keys or how great she made BlackBerry phones sound. She could have written songs about BlackBerry phones, when in reality, the phone that she actually wanted and that she, she actually used was a far superior Apple product called an iPhone. <laughs> now, friends, the reason I share this is because, yes, I do have an iPhone myself. Sorry, I'm biased. But the reason I share this is because we all know that a lot of times what people claim with their lips, no matter how fervently they may claim it, that's not always an accurate depiction of what they truly believe deep down in their hearts. But their actions and their deeds, friends, it's always a clear indication of what's really going on deep down in someone's head or someone's heart. Now, brothers and sisters, what James says in this passage that we just read is the exact same as actually true for Christians when it comes to our faith. See, I hope many of us, I hope all of us here this morning, we claim and that we believe to profess in Jesus, that we believe and accept and embrace the gospel for our salvation and for our lives. 
But friends, the, the question that James is posing in this passion for, pass, passage for us this morning is how do you know? How do you actually truly know if the gospel is real to you? How do you actually and truly know that you have a real and a true and a living faith? Now, friends, the answer James says is you cannot just look at your words. You can't just look at what you profess or what you've professed or said to other people. But James says the answer is you have to also look at your life. You have to also look at what fruit the seeds of the gospel have and are producing in your life right now and in the past. Now, brothers and sisters, just as a caveat and a disclaimer, this is by far, this is probably one of the most difficult passages, not just in James, but in the New Testament, maybe in the Bible. In fact, many people throughout church history, they've accused James in this passage of contradicting the Apostle Paul. They've accused James of basically rejecting the gospel and teaching salvation by works because of what he says in this passage. Now, friends, what I just want to make very clear from the outset is this, that James's main point in this passage is that while we are saved by faith alone in Christ, not by our works, what James teaches us in, the, in this passage is that the faith that you and I are saved by, it is a faith that will inevitably produce good works. It is a faith that will always, if it's true, lead to and produce good works in our lives. But on the flip side, James says that a faith that does not work in other words, a faith that never manifests itself in action, James says, is a faith that's dead. It's a faith that cannot save you. It's a faith that James says very starkly and strongly, it's not a real faith. And so, brothers and sisters, as we study this, this challenging but this very important passage here today, there are three things that James teaches us here this morning about the relationship between faith and works that I want us to look at. And so first, James teaches us that faith without works is useless. Secondly, James will show us that faith without works is demonic, and we'll get to what that means. And lastly, James shows us that saving faith, true faith, it works. And so again, the three things that we'll look at here this morning is first, faith without works is useless. Secondly, it's demonic. And lastly, saving true faith, it works. So let's begin with the first point. Faith without works is useless. Now, if you read verse 14, the beginning of this passage again with me, James, he opens this passage by asking us a question. And he says in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? Now, friends, the first thing that we need to clarify here is who exactly is James talking about in this passage? Who is he referencing? Who is he addressing in verse 14? Now, friends, just to be clear, James is not talking about people who have actual real faith, but who are just kind of weak believers or they're immature believers. But, friends, James is talking about people here who profess, who claim they have faith, claim they believe in Jesus and that they're Christians, but who never show it. They never reveal or show that that's actually true in their lives. Because friends, notice in verse 14, James doesn't write, what good is it, brothers, if someone does have faith, but they have no works? James says in verse 14, what good is it if a person says or professes or claims they have faith, but they have absolutely no works? In other words, friends, James is concerned in this passage about people who claim and profess to be Christians when deep down in their heart of hearts, they're not. James is talking about, in other words, people. He's addressing people who have may have they may have prayed a prayer when they were younger. They may have gone through membership class at a church. They've connected themselves to a church community. They have a lot of Christian friends and Christian community. They may have even professed their faith when they were younger. And yet in their lives, there's absolutely no evidence that the gospel is real to them. And friends, James says, if you can memorize the gospel, if you can profess the gospel, say the gospel, if you can even share the gospel and tell the gospel to other people, and yet you can show no evidence in your own personal life that the gospel is worked in your life, or that it's at work in your life, James asks, then what good is that? What good is your faith? 
And friends, James paints a picture of this argument, and he shows us a picture of this argument by this example in verses 15 through 16. And James asks us this question, paints this scenario and says, imagine someone in the church, a brother or sister, he says, a brother or sister in the church, they come up to you and they're in need. You know, they've hit rock bottom, they're in need of food, of clothing, of shelter. They walk up to you and they ask for your help. And in this conversation, all you do is you say to that person, as James says, go in peace, brother, or go in peace, sister. Be filled, be warmed. And you walk away from that person and you do absolutely nothing to care for those person's needs, whatever they were. And James asked the question, what good is that? You know, two years, I think it was about two years ago now, many of you remember that there was this big Silverado fire um, in Orange County, uh, more inland. And a lot of our church members, actually myself included, were affected by it. We had to leave and we had to evacuate our homes just at a moment's notice, essentially. And friends, I remember, and I bring this up because I remember during that time, I actually heard that some of the families in our church, they were kind and gracious and generous enough to offer and actually open up their homes to house people in our church that had to evacuate at a moment's notice. It was so generous and so thoughtful. It was so encouraging when I heard this. But friends, imagine for a moment now, you were in that situation. You're in that situation and someone you know in our church, who you're not just an acquaintance with, but someone you know well, their family has to evacuate. They come up to you and they say, this just happened so quickly, like, we didn't have any time, we don't have any money for a hotel, we didn't have time to gather any belongs, we don't have a place to say, I don't know what we're gonna do, I don't know how long we're gonna have to evacuate for. They come up to you, they say this, in that conversation, all you say to that person is, I really hope you guys figure it out. I hope you guys stay safe. I hope next time you buy fire insurance, a really good fire insurance too. And you walk away. It doesn't matter how kindly you said those words, friends, because James's point is, in that moment, what good, what effect, how useful were those words that you said to that person? How useful was the sentiment that you professed and claimed to that person saying, I really hope you stay safe. I really hope it works out for you guys. James says, friends, that your words may sound fine, but deep down, your lack of actions, your life is screaming to that person, I don't mean what I just said to you. And friends, in the same way, James says that a professed faith if you confess to have faith, if you confess to believe in Jesus, and your, your life shows no evidence of that, and there's no works at all or obedience without gospel change, then friends, James says in the same way that it is useless. It's not real faith, because your words, they may sound fine when you confess them on Sunday mornings or to other people, or when you go through membership to the elders. But friends, what your life is screaming to God, to yourself and to people around you is, I don't mean the words that I just said. Brothers and sisters, let me be clear. It is a counterfeit faith. It's a fake and counterfeit faith to say and know and think that Jesus loves me so much and I know his grace for me is so deep that I can just do whatever I want. I don't have to live a certain way. I don't have to care and sacrifice for certain people or those in need. I don't have to change anything about my life because I know that at the end of the day, Jesus loves me and accepts me the way I am. His grace is gonna cover me. No, friends, true Christianity and true faith it actually says the opposite. It says that because Jesus loves me so much, because his grace for me in my life is so deep, I want to do whatever he wants me to do. I want to love whoever he loves. I want to care for whoever he cares for. I want to change so that I can become just like he is. And so friends, the first argument that James gives and makes in this passage is that true faith, or excuse me, false faith, faith that is without works, faith that was that is without any change or obedience, friends. At the end of the day, it's a counterfeit faith. It's useless, and it's not true faith. Now, friends, 
as we move on, the second argument that James makes to continue to build his case and make this point, the second argument that James makes is that faith without works is demonic. Now, friends, what exactly does that mean? It sounds a little bit crazier or harsher, extreme. Now, friends, let's just break down James's argument here. In verse 18, as we continue through this passage, in verse 18, what James does is he essentially, he imagines an objection that someone might make to him, basically saying, okay, look, James, you have your faith, that's great. I have works. In other words, this imaginary objector is basically saying to James, James, don't you know that there's, there's two types of faith? You know, people like you, James, you're all about knowledge and theology and doctrine and intellect. Whereas people like me, James, my faith is more practical faith. I'm more about, you know, doing, acting, and serving. I don't really care as much about theology. But James, don't you know there's two types? As long as you have one without the other, it's fine. You don't need to have both types of faith. We're all different types of Christians. But friends, notice how James responds in verse 18. In verse 18, James says, this person will say, or someone will say, you have your faith, I have my works. And James responds by saying, fine, show me your faith. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith through and by my works. Now, friends, in other words, what James is saying here is that his response to this person is that there are not two types of faith in Christianity. There is not intellectual faith for people probably at our church, I'll assume, who are reformed, and there's not practical faith for other Christians or other churches out there. But James is saying there's only true, genuine, saving faith, and then there's false faith. And James's point here is that genuine, saving faith Friends, it is always going to be both. It is always going to be both intellectual and practical. In other words, it's always going to involve both, both the head and the heart as well as your hands. It cannot be one or the other. Because if it is, what James says is, that's a false faith. Your faith is fake. It's false. And friends, if that was not clear enough, what James does is he, he drives, he really hammers this point home, and he drives this point home in verse 19 where he writes in verse 19, you believe this imaginary person, you believe intellectually that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, friends, what James does in verse 19 here is, what he's doing here is, he is dismantling the notion that many of us, if we're honest, may be tempted at times to believe as Christians. The notion to believe that if I just believe the right doctrines, you know, that God is one, that he's triune, if I just have my Bible and my theology down, if I know, you know the doctrines of justification and sanctification, if I know the five solas of the Reformation, or I know the doctrines of grace or tulip, that, that is enough, that I'm fine. And friends, James's point here, it's simple, but it's strong. James is saying that, friends, having a merely intellectual faith, affirming Christian truths, having good theology, as central and as important that, as that may be, James says it does not make you a disciple of Jesus. Because his point here is that, friends, even demons have right beliefs. Even demons have good theology. Friends, did you know that demons are actually very good theologians? Now, Sam Alberry, in his commentary on James, he has such a helpful quote here in verse 19, and he says this, and I quote, If we're ever tempted to congratulate ourselves about our orthodoxy, about having our theology right, we need to remember who we share it with. The demons have sound doctrine. Affirming certain right things about God is clearly not enough. Hell is full of good theology. Now, brothers and sisters, the point that James is making here is this. If any of us in our, in our Christian walks or lives, if any of us are ever satisfied in our faith with just having good doctrine and right theology, but we never allow that theology to affect us internally and personally, we never allow that theology 
to bring about any change or growth or obedience in our lives, then, friends, James says that our faith is essentially we're on the even playing field and we're on the same level as that of demons. And so, friends, the question then is, if that's the case, what then separates our faith from the faith of demons, God's enemies and adversaries? Well, friends, the, question, the answer to that question, James says, it's in how you respond, how you respond to the theology that you believe and that you profess. Now, look with me again at the end of verse 19. In the very last two words of verse 19, James says that the demons, in response to their belief, their faith that God is one, that he's triune, that he's one, James says that they respond by shuddering. They're afraid, they shudder. Now, friends, why does James even bring this up? Why is this important? Well, friends, he says this because James knows deep down that even demons are not apathetic. Even demons are not unaffected by what they know about Jesus and who he is. And friends, in the Gospels, if you've read the Gospel accounts before, how do you know that the demons that Jesus confronted throughout his ministry, the demons that he exercised throughout his ministry, how do you know that those demons actually believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that he's the Messiah come to save the world from their sin? Well, you know, friends, because every time Jesus came or anyone mentioned his name, the demons would cower and shudder. Every time Jesus even approached, the demons fled from his power and they fled from Jesus' presence. And friends, in the exact same way, how can people, how can we ourselves know that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, know that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if our only response, if our only response to his name, if our only response to his power, his grace, and his presence in our lives is, if we're honest, most of the time apathy or no response at all. Friends, if even demons, God's enemies, his adversaries are impacted about what they know about Jesus and who he is. Friends, how much more should we as Christians be impacted every time that you and I encounter and experience Jesus' grace and the reality of who he is in our lives? And so, friends, the question that James is asking all of us here this morning is, are you being affected by the theology that you came, claim to profess? Are you being affected by the theology that you're learning every week as you study the Bible, as you hear the preaching of God's word? Because, friends, if you never allow your intellectual faith, if you never allow that to actually lead you to things like true repentance, to holiness, to attempting to grow in Christ-likeness at all, then, friends, James says your faith is no more real, it's no more alive or living than the faith of demons. As a pastor named Charles Mitten once said, it's a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. And friends, this brings us to our last point. Saving faith works. Now, in this final section of this passage, James, he gets to the heart of what he's trying, been trying to explain in this entire passage, and really the heart of the entire letter in the book of James. And what he does in this final section, he gives us two examples of how saving faith, true, genuine faith in Jesus, and how works, how they go, and how they work together. And he does this by providing two examples from the Old Testament, Abraham and Rahab. And friends, just as a disclaimer, this part's going to get, there's a lot of information here. There's going to be a lot of theology, but please just bear with me. Now, first, in verses 21 through 23, James provides an example of Abraham. And he says in verses 21 through 23 this, Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, friends, what James does in these verses is he takes us back to some key events in Abraham's life, Father Abraham's life. And for those of you who have grown up in the church, if you can remember Abraham's life, all the way back in Genesis chapter 22, God commands Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac upon an altar. He says that to Abraham in Genesis 22. And friends, not only this was this, did this command seem like an unholy command from God, but it also seemed to contradict everything that God had promised and told Abraham before this. Because if you remember Abraham's life, seven chapters earlier, in Genesis chapter 15, what happens is God comes to Abraham, and he promises Abraham that he will give Abraham and Sarah a son. And through that son, God says that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the, sea, as the sand on the seashore, numerous as the stars in the sky. And Genesis 15 verse 6 says that Abraham believed God's promise. He believed his word, and it, God counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was justified by God, by believing, by faith. And what happened several years later is that promised son that Abraham believed God would give, that promised son Isaac, was finally born. But now if we fast forward back, back again to Genesis chapter 22, what's happening is we see Abraham about to sacrifice this promised one and only son Isaac upon an altar according to God's command. And as many of us may know the story goes, Abraham actually didn't need to. You know, God intervened, he sent an angel, told Abraham stop, and he provided a ram as a substitute. But friends, James's point in all this is this. Abraham's willingness to obey God in Genesis 22, it proved his faith back in Genesis 15. It proved that he really did trust God's promise all the way back in Genesis 15. In other words, friends, his obedience, it demonstrated the genuineness and the reality of his faith. If I can put it another way, friends, the kind of faith that had been credited to Abraham as righteousness, the kind of faith that justified him Seven chapters earlier in Genesis 15, that same saving faith now produced this act of obedience in Genesis 22. And friends, all of this leads James to his conclusion in verse 24 of our passage, where James writes in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now friends, yes, this is from the Bible. That was from the inspired word of God. Now, brothers and sisters, this is probably one of the most controversial, one of the most difficult and misunderstood verses potentially in the entire Bible because on, just on the surface level, without any context, it looks like James is not only contradicting the Apostle Paul, but it looks like he's also rejecting and contradicting the gospel. And so friends, if the Bible really is one unified story, one unified message of salvation, if the Bible's not contradictory anywhere, if it's not contradicting itself in these two verses, then friends, what do we do here? How do we make sense of Romans 3.28 and, and what James says here. Well, friends, for example, look again what James says in verse 24. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and by, not by faith alone. Now, friends, look at what Paul says in, verse, in Romans 3.28. Paul says in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, friends, what exactly do we do with these two verses? How can we make sense of this? Well, friends, let me just point out two important things here. And as a, as a caveat, this is going to get a little bit deep and theological and dense, but please just bear with me. Friends, the first thing I want to point out is that throughout this entire letter, James has actually been using the word faith much differently than the way the Apostle Paul uses it in his letters. See, for Paul, faith is this. For Paul, for Paul faith is the act of trusting Christ. For Paul, faith is the act of putting your faith in Christ for salvation. 
putting your faith in Christ's work for salvation. That's faith for Paul. But friends, on the other hand, faith for James is much different. Faith for James is not so much the act of trusting in Christ, but when James mentions faith all throughout this letter so far, James has more been talking about the act of claiming to have trust in Christ, the act of, in other words, of professing to believe in Jesus. That's what faith means for James. And so, friends, if we were to take that definition of faith and paraphrase it back into verse 24, this would be a more helpful translation of verse 24. James would say, essentially, you see that a person is justified by their works and not just by their faith alone, their claim to believe alone, their claim to say they have faith in Jesus alone. Now, friends, as we read this, many of us still may feel a little bit uneasy reading that and seeing that, and it's getting a little better, but it still feels like James and Paul are at odds with one another. Let me just point out one more thing, and it's very important, friends. The second thing I want to point out is that James and Paul, they not only use the word faith differently from each other, but they also use the word, the verb justified much differently from one another. Friends, for Paul, and all throughout his letters, when Paul says that someone is justified, what Paul means by that is essentially he's, saying, he's talking about how someone is accepted by God. He's talking about, in other words, how someone is declared righteous before God, how it's forensic, it's judicial, and it's from the perspective of God. But now, friends, on the flip side, on the other hand, when James, all throughout this letter, says that someone is justified, James is not so much talking about how someone gets right with God, but what James is talking about is how you can tell, how you as a person, as a human being, can see that someone is justified by God. In other words, James is talking about, friends, how you can tell that someone has, really has faith. James isn't talking about, friends, the means of justification, how someone gets justified, but he's talking about how you can see that someone is, the evidence for it. And so, friends, if we were to take both those new definitions for James of faith and justified, if you take both of those and paraphrase them both back into verse 24, here's a more helpful translation of what verse 24 really means for James. James would say in verse 24, you see, in other words, you can tell if a person has true faith is justified by their works and not just their claim to believe. And brothers and sisters, James, his point in all this is this, that in Abraham's life, he just like us, was justified by faith alone when he put his faith in God and his promise all the way back in Genesis 15. But friends, James's point is that Abraham's saving faith, it was never alone. But friends, it was demonstrated, it was shown to be true through his obedience and his works in Genesis chapter 22, friends. And the point is, friends, those works did in no way, they did not save Abraham. They did not add to his salvation. But friends, the point James is making is they revealed the genuineness and the reality of his faith, the faith that he already had, the faith that he was already saved by. And friends, in the same way, James goes on in verse 25 to explain that the exact same was true for Rahab, the woman who helped the Israelites in Jericho. And paraphrasing verse 25, James says in verse 25, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified or shown to have true faith by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And friends, really quickly, if you remember the story of Rahab in the Old Testament, in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab is living in Jericho, and she hears about all these things that God has done to the Egyptians, all these other nations that the Israelites have defeated. And because Rahab hears that, she believes that God has given Jericho, her city, her nation, into the hands of the Israelites. And so what does Rahab do? She risks her life, she risks her family's life to shelter and hide the Israelite spies in Jericho. She, in other words, she protects and aids God's people at the expense, at the risk 
of her very own life. And friends, in other words, Rahab, like Abraham, she acted on her faith. She acted on what she believed to be true about God, that God had given Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. In other words, friends, Rahab's faith worked. And friends, her faith was shown and it was revealed to be genuine and true through what she did, through her actions. Now, friends, I know that was a lot of information. It was very dense. But friends, just as we begin to come to a close, just practically speaking then, what is the relationship between our faith and our works as Christians, as believers in Jesus? You know, Charles Spurgeon the great Baptist preacher, he once explained it this way by describing a picture of an apple tree. And he said, essentially, if you see an apple tree and there's, it's just filled and brimming with big, red, bright apples, and there's lush green leaves everywhere, and you see that tree, you don't even think twice about whether the tree is alive or not. It's not even a thought that crosses your mind. But he says, when you see an apple tree and there's absolutely no apples on it, there's no leaves, all the branches are kind of withered and they're dry, and year after year after year, you come and you visit that same tree to see what's happening. And that tree still has no leaves, it still has no fruit, and it's, and it's all dry. What is the only logical conclusion? Well, friends, that the tree is dead. That the tree has not received what it needs to be alive. Now, friends, the point is, the apples and the leaves on that tree, they are not the source of the tree's life. That's sunlight, that's water, that's soil, that's photosynthesis. Friends, the point is, the apples themselves do not make the tree alive but friends, the apples and the leaves are just proof or evidence that the tree has already received and has been receiving what it needs to live, to thrive, and be made alive. And friends, in the same way, James is saying that our good works as Christians, our obedience as Christians to God, they in no way add to our salvation. They in no way make us alive, and they in no way make us more accepted by God. Christ has already earned and merited all of that for us through his life his death and his resurrection. But friends, James is saying that our good works are just fruit. Our good works are just evidence of the life that we have already received by grace in Christ. And friends, this does not mean in any way that we are going to be perfect, that you're not going to struggle with sin anymore this side of glory. But friends, what it does mean is that over time, as you, in the tree metaphor, continue to receive life and nourishment and sunlight through the means of grace, through the word and the sacraments, through church community, through worship. It means by faith that over time, you will bear fruit as a Christian. You will bear fruit. And on the other hand, brothers and sisters, some of us here today, you know, you may have gone or you may have been attending church for a really long time in your life. It may be all of your life. You grew up in the church. But friends, you may look at your life and you may realize that like the dead tree, year after year after year, you keep returning. And there's no change in your life. There's no evidence that the gospel is working in your life. Aside from the fact that you've been attending church for so long, aside from the fact that you're very connected and plugged into a Christian community, you have a lot of Christian friends. Friends, if the gospel has borne no fruit in your life, if you're continuing to live in just willful patterns of sin, then friends, James wants you to ask yourself the question this morning. Is my faith real? Is the faith that I profess to have, can it save me? But friends, as an encouragement to all of us here this morning as we close, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that when you come to Christ, the gospel promises you that you can come to Jesus 
just as you are. You can come to Jesus with all of your sin and all of your baggage, your brokenness, and your idolatry. You can come freely, friends. That's what the gospel promises. But friends, at the same time, the gospel also promises you that if and when you actually do experience and encounter the grace of Jesus in your life, that Jesus promises you to never leave you as you are. Jesus promises you, friends, never to leave you in your sin, in your brokenness and idolatry. For friends, as a branch that is engrafted into him, the vine, he promises to bear fruit in and through you. Friends, that is a promise that Jesus makes to you in the gospel. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Please bow your heads with me, brothers and sisters. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for this passage, Lord, as difficult to understand, as difficult to apply in our lives, Lord, as this passage may be. Lord, thank you for this sobering reminder, Lord, that although, Lord, your grace for us is so deep, Lord, that salvation is freely offered to us in Christ through what he has done and not by our works, Lord, thank you for reminding us, Lord, to reflect upon our own lives here today, or to see and reflect upon the ways, Lord, in which you have, or perhaps some of us, Lord, have not been at work. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that for those of us, Lord, who are continuing to strive, Lord, for obedience, to grow in Christ-likeness to you, Lord, that you would remind us, Lord, that in the end, it is not our, our own efforts, not our own works, Lord, by which those things that we can grow, but Lord, it's only by faith faith in Christ and the grace that he gives us. But Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, who may be struggling in their faith, Lord, for those of us here today who may not be sure, Lord, as we reflect upon our hearts and reflect upon this passage, Lord, whether or not we have saving faith, genuine faith that can save, Lord, I pray for those people here this morning who may be listening or watching, Lord, that you continue, Lord, to pry and work in their hearts, Lord, that they would see their desperate need for the life and the grace that only, Lord, the nourishment of the gospel can bring about in their lives. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, as we continue to worship here this morning, Lord, remind us of your grace, remind us of our need, continue to rely upon your grace as we seek and strive to obey you as your sons and daughters. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.